Denver voters will decide everything from fixing roads to funding parks to public campaign financing to legislative redistricting and so much more. These issues will be decided in the November 2018 general election. Hello, I'm Rebecca Jacobson. On this edition of Denver Decides, we'll look at the issues you'll be voting on, including the pros and cons for each one. We'll also look at the candidates running for office and at the voting process. It's a jam-packed ballot this fall with a full 22 ballot questions, so you might want to get comfortable. We'll start with the ballot issues. There are several statewide and citywide questions on the ballot. Several of these issues are citizen-initiated measures, meaning citizens gathered enough signatures on a petition, which were then certified by the Secretary of State and placed on the ballot. The other issues were referred to voters by legislators. As we go through these issues, it's important to remember that a yes vote is a vote to accept the proposal and change in our laws. A no vote means things stay the way they are. Here are the proposals, and with the help of the Colorado Blue Book, the Denver Notice of Election Booklet, and the League of Women Voters, some pros and cons to consider. If you would like to follow along with these ballot issues, you can download a sample ballot at denvervotes.org. You'll find it in the What's on the Ballot section. Let's start with the state issues. Going in ballot order, first up are the questions referred by state legislators. The first of these is Amendment V, concerning the age of assembly members, meaning the members of the Colorado House and Senate. Amendment V asks if there should be an amendment to the Colorado Constitution to reduce the age qualification for a member of the Colorado Legislature from 25 years to 21 years. Here are the pros and cons for Amendment V. Proponents say an individual who is 21 is considered an adult under the law and therefore should be allowed to serve in the state legislature. They also say voters should be able to judge whether a candidate is qualified to hold elected office. Opponents say lack of maturity and life experience may hinder a candidate from being an effective leader. And the current age requirement aligns with other state and federal requirements. Next up is Amendment W. This amendment asks voters if there should be a change in the format of the election ballot for judicial retention elections, meaning whether or not a judge or justice should remain on the bench. You can see the current format for judicial retention elections on this year's ballot. Currently, the same question is repeated for each individual judge or justice. This would change to be one question for each type of court with names of all the judges or justices standing for retention. Here are the pros and cons for Amendment W. Proponents say a shorter ballot will save county clerks printing, processing, and mailing costs, particularly in counties with greater populations where ballots must be printed in both English and Spanish. Additionally, they say a more concise ballot may increase voter participation by reducing voter fatigue related to a lengthy ballot. A more user-friendly and compact ballot will bring Colorado closer to well-established principles for ballot design and clear, simple language. Opponents say where no problem currently exists, this constitutional change may result in unintended consequences, which may be difficult, costly, and perhaps impossible to fix. They also say claims of saving taxpayers' money do not justify the proposed change, as the savings will not extend statewide to counties with few judges on the ballot. Next up is referred question X, industrial hemp definition. This proposed amendment would change the definition of industrial hemp from a constitutional to a statutory definition. And it would allow the use of the definition of industrial hemp found in federal law or in state statute. Under current state law, if the federal government authorizes the U.S. Department of Agriculture to regulate the cultivation and research and development of industrial hemp, the state's program would automatically repeal. The Colorado Department of Agriculture is neutral on the issue. 
Proponents say striking the definition of industrial hemp from the Colorado Constitution allows the state legislature to react to changes to the definition at the federal level. As a result, Colorado's industrial hemp growers will maintain compliance with federal policy and remain competitive with other states. Opponents say voters approved the current definition of industrial hemp in 2012. This proposal allows the state's legislature to make changes to the term's definition, which may cause uncertainty among industrial hemp growers who have relied on the constitutional definition in establishing their businesses. Next up is referred question Y, congressional redistricting. This amendment asks voters if there should be an amendment to the Colorado Constitution concerning a change to the way that congressional districts are drawn following the census. It would take the duty to draw congressional districts away from the state legislature and give it to an independent commission, composed of 12 citizens who possess specified qualifications. This would prohibit any one political party's control of the commission. It would require that one-third of the commissioners not be affiliated with any political party, one-third of the commissioners be affiliated with the state's largest political party, currently the Democratic Party, and one-third of the commissioners be affiliated with the state's second-largest political party, currently the Republican Party. It sets qualifications, transparency, ethics, standards, and criteria for the process and the commission. Those in favor say the amendment limits the role of partisan politics in the redistricting process by establishing an independent commission made up of an equal number of Democrats, Republicans, and unaffiliated representatives. It makes the process of redistricting more transparent by requiring open meetings and public engagement during the planning process. They also say it creates fair criteria for drawing of district maps to maximize the number of competitive congressional seats, protecting communities of interest, and keeping districts compact. Opponents say this amendment takes accountability out of the redistricting process with the selection of unelected commissioners who are not accountable to the voters of Colorado. Finding enough qualified individuals to fill two commissions may be difficult. The selection process for commissioners is complex, and because half of the members are selected randomly, it may prevent qualified, experienced individuals from becoming commissioners. They also say the criteria may be difficult to apply objectively, as there could be broad definitions of communities of interest and competitive districts. Next up is Referred Question Z, which is legislative redistricting. Referred Question Z proposes a change to the manner in which State Senate and State House of Representatives districts are drawn. As with Amendment Y, there would be a commission of 12 members to do the redistricting. One-third of the commissioners would not be affiliated with any political party. One-third of the commissioners would be affiliated with the state's largest political party. And one-third of the commissioners would be affiliated with the state's second-largest political party. Those in favor of Referred Question Z say this proposal limits the role of partisan politics in the redistricting process by establishing an independent commission made up of Democrats, Republicans, and unaffiliated voters. They also say it makes the process of redistricting more transparent and provides an opportunity for public participation. The amendment creates fair criteria for the drawing of legislative districts, prioritizing communities of interest and political competitiveness. Opponents say this amendment takes accountability out of the redistricting process with the selection of unelected commissioners who are not accountable to the voters of Colorado. The makeup of the commission does not allow for members of minor parties to be included. Additionally, they say, the selection process for commissioners is complex and because half of the members are selected randomly, it may prevent qualified, experienced individuals from becoming commissioners.
finding enough qualified individuals to fill two commissions may be difficult. The final statewide measure on the ballot that was referred by state legislators is referred question A. The measure asks if there should be an amendment to the Colorado Constitution that prohibits slavery and involuntary servitude as punishment for a crime, and thereby prohibits slavery and involuntary servitude in all circumstances. Proponents say freedom and equality are fundamental human values, which should be reflected in the Colorado Constitution. Additionally, they say the language to be eliminated is archaic. It was written in the 19th century when not all people were treated with human dignity or even considered human. Colorado must heal racial divides, and removal of racially divisive symbols will move us toward that important goal. Those against the proposal say this change would be merely symbolic, since slavery and involuntary servitude are already illegal in all contexts in Colorado. And they say work programs have a legitimate place in the correctional system. This proposal may result in legal challenges to current offender work programs until legal precedent is established. Now for the statewide citizen-initiated proposals on the ballot. First up is Amendment 73, Funding for Public Schools. This proposal would increase funding for preschool through 12th grade for public education. It would raise the state individual income tax rate for those with taxable income over $150,000 and increase the state corporate income tax rate to provide additional funding for education. For the property taxes levied by school districts, it would reduce the current residential assessment rate of 7.2% to 7% and the current non-residential assessment rate of 29% to 24%. Those in favor of Amendment 73 say Colorado has one of the fastest growing economies, yet spends roughly $2,800 less than the national average and has the least competitive teacher wages in the country, causing teacher shortages in the majority of Colorado school districts. They also say strong public schools are the backbone of healthy communities, and one of the government's most important duties is to provide students with a quality education. This proposal will give local school districts the funding they need by creating a new revenue stream for local schools that legislators can't raid. This measure would provide equitable funding for all Colorado school districts by asking those benefiting the most from Colorado's growth, corporations and the wealthy, to contribute a little more. Those opposed to Amendment 73 say this measure imposes an additional tax burden on state taxpayers without any guarantee of increased academic achievement. It may impede growth because the tax increase is so large. Increasing state income taxes reduces the money that households have to spend or save. As a result, consumer spending and overall economic activity may decline. Opponents say this measure raises taxes for thousands of working families and their employers. The amendment gives corporations a property tax cut while raising property taxes on Colorado homeowners, which will worsen Colorado's affordable housing crisis. The new tax brackets do not adjust for inflation, so each year more taxpayers will pay the new higher tax. It further complicates the state's property tax and ignores the other necessary services paid for by the property taxes. It will drive wealth out of the state. Next up is Amendment 74, Just Compensation for Reduction in Fair Market Value by Government Law or Regulation. This measure would require the government to award just compensation to owners of private property when a government law or regulation reduces the fair market value of the property. Those in favor of Amendment 74 say the intent of this amendment is to restore a balance to Colorado's constitutional protections of property rights. 
This measure levels the playing field and gives all citizens the opportunity to make a claim to be made whole when the government diminishes the value of private property. It promotes good government, helps limit excessive regulation, and allows for an equal process for impacted parties. Currently, courts have held that for compensation for economic damage to occur, the property in question must be rendered nearly valueless. It gives owners the right to seek a legal remedy and potential compensation. Those opposed to Amendment 74 say this proposal will impact taxpayers and governments in Colorado. The scope of the measure will have far-reaching and significant consequences regarding future decisions made by governments that benefit their citizens. Even though safeguards may be supported by the citizens, governments may choose to ignore community protections for infrastructure, water quality, and air quality. They say taxpayers will be responsible for payments to property owners for any loss in property value due to a government action that reduces the value of their property. Compensation may be ordered even if property owners continue to use their property profitably. Amendment 75 concerns campaign contributions. Amendment 75 would allow all candidates to collect five times the level of individual contributions currently authorized when another candidate in the same election loans or contributes at least $1 million to his or her own campaign. For Amendment 75, those in favor say this proposal levels the playing field for those who are not rich enough to self-fund their own campaign. It encourages participation by more candidates, not just those who are wealthy. They also say Colorado's current limits on individual contributions are among the lowest in the country, and candidates who rely on individual contributions are at a significant disadvantage in communicating their message to the voters. Those opposed to Amendment 75 say this proposal opens the door to allow more contributions, which would further inflate election spending. This proposal does nothing to address personal wealth between candidates. Also, this amendment would complicate rather than fix Colorado's campaign finance system by allowing more money to be spent on elections. They say it is not the way to fix a broken system. The preceding measures were all proposals to make new amendments to the Colorado Constitution. Now for those measures that would not amend the Constitution but would change the Colorado Revised Statutes. Proposition 109 authorizes bonds for transportation projects. Proposition 109 would require the state to borrow up to $3.5 billion in 2019 to fund up to 66 specific highway and bridge projects. It would limit the repayment amount, including interest, to $5.2 billion over 20 years. It prohibits proceeds of bond sales from being spent on multimodal projects or on mass transit. It requires the state to repay the borrowed amount from existing revenues without raising taxes or fees. It requires the legislature to make debt service payments on the bonds before funding K-12 in higher education, corrections, and social services, including Medicaid. And it replaces transportation funding allocated by the state legislature in 2017 and 2018. Proponents say roads are a core function of government, which the state legislature has been ignoring. This proposal requires Colorado to issue $3.5 billion in bonds for pressing transportation projects. The initiative funds the most needed road and bridge repair and expansion projects around the state by name and location, so voters know exactly what they are getting, all without raising taxes or fees. This proposal compels the legislature to reprioritize roads in the budget. Additionally, proponents say the cost of paying back the bonds amounts to less than 2% of the current state budget. Colorado has all the money it needs to comfortably address our crumbling road infrastructure. We just need to make it a priority. Those opposed to Proposition 109 say because this proposal requires that the bonds be repaid with existing state revenue, 
It will divert up to $260 million a year for 20 years away from other critical programs, including education, health care, public safety, and routine transportation maintenance. The measure does not generate enough borrowed funding to pay for all the promised projects. They say the estimated cost to construct the projects listed in the measure is $5.6 billion, but the proposal only raises $3.5 billion. The borrowed money may only be used for projects listed in the proposal. The proposal would replace financial commitments made by the General Assembly and the Governor in the 2018 legislative session. If the proposal passes, it replaces the legislature's commitment with borrowed money. Not to be confused with Proposition 109, Proposition 110 also concerns transportation funding. Proposition 110 would increase the state's sales and use tax rate by 0.62%, about $0.06 cents for every $10 purchase. It would increase from 2.9% to 3.52% for 20 years starting January 1, 2019. With this proposal, the Colorado Department of Transportation would issue up to $6 billion in bonds to pay for state transportation projects. It would limit the total repayment amount, including principal and interest, to $9.4 billion over 20 years. The new sales tax revenue would be divided in the following way. 45% would fund state transportation projects and service the debt on the bond repayment. 40% would be split evenly between municipalities and counties for local government projects. And 15% would fund multimodal transportation projects, including mass transit, bike lanes, and pedestrian paths. Counties and municipalities would have to provide a 50% match for the amount they request from the fund for their multimodal projects. Those in favor of Proposition 110 say Colorado's highways are in poor condition and have not kept pace with the population growth. The state needs to invest immediately in roads, bridges, and multimodal transit, such as buses and bicycles, and walking improvements. This measure creates a guaranteed and sustainable source of transportation funding to address this crisis. New and dedicated revenue for transportation will allow the state to address statewide transportation needs without taking money away from other critical state programs, such as education and health care. They also say Colorado's transportation needs have gone unmet for decades. As a result, CDOT is facing a backlog of $9 billion in unfunded projects because the state uses an out-of-date funding source, the gas tax, that can no longer meet our needs. This proposed state sales tax increase ensures that tourists visiting Colorado pay their share toward improving our transportation infrastructure. Those who oppose Proposition 110 say this proposal is a massive 21% state sales tax increase. Sales taxes are regressive, which means they hit poor and low-income Coloradans the hardest. Opponents say if it passes, many Colorado communities will have combined state and local sales tax rates of over 9% and some over 11%. Proponents claim the tax increase is needed to address transportation needs, but only some of the money goes to roads and bridges. And opponents argue the tax increase also funds statewide multimodal projects, which can mean anything from bike paths to trains and other kinds of transit. This proposal also creates a fund for local governments to use for whatever they may define as transportation-related, making Coloradans in other parts of the state pay higher sales tax for local pet projects is simply wrong. Proposition 111 is the payday loans measure. This measure would lower the finance charges from payday lenders and reduce allowable charges on payday loans to an annual percentage rate of no more than 
It requires a lender to refund a prorated portion of finance charges to a consumer if a loan is paid prior to maturity and authorizes charges which may be applied by the lender to a payday loan. Those in favor of Proposition 111 say payday lenders prey on vulnerable families, taking advantage of them by charging interest rates that can go as high as 200 percent. Lending money at outrageously high interest rates to hardworking families is just wrong, and Colorado government should not enable companies to continue this predatory practice. Those in favor also say payday lenders are operating within a loophole that exempts them from Colorado's usury laws. By reducing the cost of payday loans, this measure provides the same 36 percent APR rate cap that is applied to other loans in Colorado. Those opposed to Proposition 111 say this measure is unnecessary because the state legislature passed reforms in 2010 that led to reduced loan costs and fewer defaults, while ensuring that consumers have access to a well-regulated source of emergency loans. Payday loans provide options for consumers who may not qualify for other types of loans. Opponents say with limited or no access to payday loans for emergencies, consumers may pay higher costs to other creditors for late payment fees, bounced checks, or overdraft fees, or even utility disconnect fees. Proposition 112 is about setbacks for oil and gas development. Proposition 112 would require that all new oil and gas development not on federal land must be located 2,500 feet from an occupied structure or a vulnerable area. And it determines that the re-entry of an oil or gas well that was previously plugged or abandoned is considered new development. Here are the pros and cons of Proposition 112. Those in favor of Proposition 112 say this proposal will establish a common-sense buffer zone between new oil and gas development and homes, schools, playgrounds, and drinking water sources. The distance of 2,500 feet, almost half a mile, aligns with the evacuation zones used by first responders and a growing body of peer-reviewed studies that show an increased risk of negative health impacts within a half mile, including elevated cancer risk, respiratory problems, birth defects, and low birth weight. Additionally, they say this proposal will update Colorado's regulations to address new technologies and the scale of current drilling to protect our health, safety, and quality of life with the inevitable harms associated with hydraulic fracturing near neighborhoods and our water. Those opposed to Proposition 112 say this measure is so extreme that it increases setbacks to five times the distance of what is currently required, which effectively bans oil and natural gas development in the state costing tens of thousands of jobs and hundreds of millions of dollars in tax revenue. In fact, the setback would put 85 percent of the state off-limits to new oil and gas development, according to the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission. They also say only 23 percent of the impacted jobs would be from the oil and gas sector. The remaining 77 percent of job losses would be in construction, health care, retail, real estate, hotel and food service, and local government, including teachers. Those are the state ballot questions. You can get more information on these issues from the Colorado Blue Book, which will be mailed to all registered voters. You can also download a copy at leg.colorado.gov bluebook and learn more at the Secretary of State's website, sos.state.co.us. You can also get a copy of the League of Women Voters of Colorado's Ballot Issues booklet at libraries and other locations. Or you can download it at their website, lwvcolorado.org. We'll be right back after a short break with the city ballot questions, plus information on the candidates and the voting process. Stay tuned. 
Welcome back to Denver Decides. Now for the city questions. Again, these are in ballot order, starting with the measures referred by our city legislators. First up is Referred Measure 2A, which concerns funding for parks. Referred Measure 2A would increase the Denver sales and use tax rate 0.25%, which would mean 2.5 cents on a $10 purchase, starting January 1, 2019. The tax will not be collected on food for home consumption or prescription drugs. The money would be used for acquiring additional land for parks, trails, and open spaces plus developing, improving, and maintaining new and existing parks, trails, and open space, including Denver's mountain parks. It will restore and protect waterways, rivers, canals, and streams, and be used to purchase, plant, and care for trees. Proponents of 2A say Denver's parks have been a key factor in the quality of life for each citizen and for the character of the city. Unfortunately, parks have been underfunded recently, Denver's ranking among comparable cities on the park score by the Trust for Public Land has dropped from 7th to 26th since 2014. This is due to Denver's rapid growth without an increase in parkland and to the inadequate funding of parks. They also say this proposal will plug the annual funding gap between current needs and available resources, as well as allow the city to begin to address deferred maintenance. This proposal will ensure equity across the city by making sure that every resident has safe, walkable access to a world-class park. Opponents of 2A say parks construction is one of four proposed sales tax increases for new programs on the 2018 Denver ballot. The proposals cumulatively increase the city sales tax 18%. However, there is no need for a sales tax increase to fund these programs. In 2018, the city's general operating fund will collect $44 million of new revenue compared to 2017. They also say next year, the city projects that $58 million of new revenues will be collected. Especially given the strong local economy, it is likely that $44 to $58 million of new tax revenue will also be collected in 2020. It would have been fiscally prudent for the city council to allocate the new revenues to these four programs instead of raising the sales tax. Next up is Referred Measure 2B. It concerns getting measures on the ballot. Referred Measure 2B proposes a change in the number of valid signatures required to place an initiative or referendum on the ballot. Currently, the number of signatures required is a percentage of votes cast for mayor in the last election. Under this proposal, it would change to a percentage of active registered voters in Denver. The measure would also lengthen the amount of time during which city council and the city attorney must conduct review and comment for proposed initiatives. Proponents of 2B say tying the petition signature requirement to a percentage of votes cast for mayor resulted in large swings in the number of signatures required. Tying the signature requirement to the voting population will have a stabilizing effect on the signature requirement and will cause the requirement to grow with the city's population. No opposition comments were filed by the constitutional deadline. Referred Measure 2C is a police lateral hire charter change. Referred Measure 2C asks if the charter of the city and county of Denver be amended to promote greater flexibility in the hiring of lateral recruits for classified service in the Denver Police Department. Those in favor of this measure say it will provide pay equity related to police experience, thereby improving police department recruitment efforts to hire qualified officers from other police departments. They also say the vetting process remains the same to ensure that only qualified officers from other departments are hired. The vetting process involves testing, screening, and complete background investigations by the Civil Service Commission and a final employment selection by the Chief of Police 
and the executive director of safety. No opposition comments were filed by the constitutional deadline. Referred Measure 2D would amend the number of appointments the clerk and recorder can make. The measure would require that the deputy clerk and recorder must be an at-will appointee of the clerk and recorder. It would also allow the clerk and recorder to appoint two additional at-will employees who will be exempt from the career service personnel system to serve in positions to be designated by the clerk and recorder. And it will eliminate the requirement that the director of elections must be an at-will appointee of the clerk and recorder. Proponents say having the flexibility to appoint up to two additional positions allows the clerk to address the office's changing needs and workload and to better serve customer needs. Having a director of elections who is an employee rather than an appointee means that the director of elections will be able to make decisions without political influence. They also say the current clerk and recorder is not seeking re-election and will not benefit from this amendment. No opposition comments were filed by the constitutional deadline. Next is Referred Measure 2E, Public Campaign Financing. This measure would ban corporations and other entities from donating directly to candidates and would lower contribution limits. It would create the Fair Elections Fund within the city's general fund, capped at $8 million per four-year election cycle, appropriated by city council and the mayor. This would match donations of $50 or less at a ratio of 9 to 1 to candidates who voluntarily agree to raise money in lower amounts and take contributions only from those who contribute no more than $50 in the aggregate per year. Those in favor of Referred Measure 2E say if enacted, the ordinance would level the playing field in Denver campaigns and return to the bedrock of American value, one person, one vote. Denver currently has a grossly imbalanced system with corporations and business entities able to contribute directly to campaigns in local elections. They also say wherever publicly financed elections have been put in place, communities have seen greater participation, including higher voter turnout and a more diverse field of candidates running. The emphasis will shift to small dollar donors. In addition, proponents say the voluntary opt-in program is as strong an incentive as any publicly financed election system in the country, ensuring that candidates can do better by accepting lower limits and turning down special interest money. And they say Denver campaign finance law has previously had little or no teeth to it. Among the benefits of this proposal is that funding for the Fair Elections Fund also covers funding for additional staff to administer and oversee the program, which puts accountability measures in place and a funding apparatus to enforce the new laws. Opponents of 2E say funding politicians' campaigns is not a city taxpayer responsibility. Taxpayers may be funding campaigns of candidates with whom they fundamentally disagree. They also say for every $50 a candidate raises, taxpayers will contribute $450. By any standards, a 900% match from taxpayer money is ludicrous. They say up to $8 million of taxpayer money intended for basic city services will be diverted to candidates each election cycle. Services being deprived include first responder emergency services, street maintenance, parks, libraries, and other important city services. In addition, opponents say, this measure proposes a solution far worse than the problem it claims to solve. This proposal for public funding of campaigns creates loopholes and unintended consequences. Even if you perceive existing campaign finance problems, this measure at a 9-to-1 match is a massive overreach. Next on the city ballot, initiated Ordinance 300 concerning the Denver College Affordability Fund. This would raise sales and use tax to increase college enrollment and degree completion by Denver residents who are earning a degree from a public or not-for-profit college, university, community college, or technical school in Colorado. 
This would be done through funding scholarships and funding support services, including career and academic counseling, tutoring, mentoring, and financial aid assistance. It would increase the sales tax rate eight one-hundredths of a percent. This is about one penny on a $10 purchase. Proponents of Ordinance 300 say it supports career opportunity and our local workforce. In just two years, 74% of jobs will demand a post-secondary credential, and today we fall far short of that number. We must graduate more post-secondary students to meet the future workforce needs. This measure will help remove a financial barrier facing current students. They also say this initiative raises meaningful scholarship dollars that can be used for certificates and degrees. Funds are awarded upon completion, motivating students to not only enroll, but to complete these critically needed classes and degrees. Many qualified, smart, and talented Denver students do not continue their education simply because of the high costs of attendance. In addition, proponents say students must demonstrate satisfactory academic progress as defined by their school. Opponents of Ordinance 300 say college scholarships are not a responsibility of city government, nor the city tax base. Other levels of government, nonprofit organizations, and private foundations already provide scholarship funding. Undocumented students are eligible for these scholarships and debt repayment. Recent state legislation expanded in-state tuition eligibility to many undocumented students. They also say rising college costs are the problem but the city has no control over the costs of any public or private educational institution, nor does it audit those entities. In addition, local workforce arguments to promote this program misled the voter, as there is no requirement for graduates to work in Denver or Colorado. If the economy dips, Denver could struggle to provide basic city services. Its attention and tax base should not be diverted to new pass-through programs like this. This new tax money may supplant other monies available to the student, Paying money on a reimbursable basis would not prevent some scholarship sources from counting that money as income after the first year. That could reduce students' eligible amounts from other sources. Next up is Initiated Ordinance 301, Caring for Denver. This measure would increase the sales and use tax rate by one quarter of one percent, which is 25 cents on a $100 purchase, beginning January 1, 2019. This would fund mental health services and treatment for children and adults, suicide prevention programs, opioid and substance abuse prevention, treatment and recovery programs, facilities and programs for those with mental health and substance abuse needs. This includes housing, joint efforts of first responders and mental health experts, and training for first responders. This is designed to reduce homelessness, improve long-term recovery, and reduce the use of jails and emergency rooms. The new fund shall be made through a nonprofit entity whose board members are appointed by the mayor of Denver, the Denver District Attorney, and the president of the Denver City Council. Those in favor of 301 say a mental health crisis or addiction can strike anyone at any time. We need to take care of our families, friends, and neighbors. This ordinance creates a dedicated funding stream to take care of children and adults in Denver. Mental health treatment is underfunded and is surrounded by negative stigma. Making sure affordable and accessible treatment is available to everyone makes Denver healthier and safer. The opioid epidemic and other addiction issues are resulting in avoidable deaths and putting a strain on our emergency rooms, jails, and first responders. Readily accessible treatment saves both lives and money. These improvements will reduce homelessness, improve long-term recovery, and reduce the use of jail and emergency rooms. Those against 301 say mental health and housing is one of the four proposed tax increases on the ballot, 
raising the rate from 3.65% to 4.31%. The four proposals will take from voters an additional $116 million per year. However, there is no need for a sales tax increase to fund these programs. Next year, the city projects that $58 million of new revenues will be collected. Especially given the strong local economy, it would have been fiscally prudent for the city council to allocate the new revenues to these four programs instead of raising the sales tax. They also say clearly, when the city is already collecting many millions of extra dollars each year, there is no need to increase the sales tax by 18 percent. Next on the ballot is Initiated Ordinance 302, concerning additional tax for the Healthy Food for Denver's Kids initiative. Initiated Ordinance 302 would provide healthy food and food-based education to Denver's kids, primarily low-income and at-risk youth. It would increase the Denver sales and use tax rate eight one-hundredths of one percent, about a penny on a $10 purchase, starting January 1, 2019 through 2029. A Denver Food Commission would be established, with 13 commissioners to appropriate nonprofit and local governmental entities. Proponents of 302 say that by voting yes, Denverites can help ensure that kids have enough to eat while receiving hands-on education and health programs for farming, gardening, cooking, home economics, and healthy eating. When possible, it will also support Colorado farms, ranches, and food businesses. They also say this is a campaign to change the face of childhood hunger and food education for a decade. A generation of Denver kids would get immediate access to healthy food and food education that will last their families a lifetime. It is endorsed by many food security-related organizations in Denver, including Denver Food Rescue, Revision, Grow House, and Denver Urban Gardens. Those opposed to 302 say sales taxes are regressive, which means they hit poor and low-income Denver residents the hardest. They say a larger percentage of poor families' expenditures would be used to pay sales tax as compared with the percentage more affluent families pay. Opponents also argue existing organizations to fight hunger and promote health, including school meal programs and food banks, should be better funded rather than setting up new administrative structures. They also say there is no need for a sales tax increase to fund these programs with a strong economy. It would have been fiscally prudent for City Council to allocate the new revenues for these four programs instead of raising the sales tax. Finally on the ballot is Issue 7G. Ballot Issue 7G asks if urban drainage and flood control district taxes should be increased to pay for district work in coordination with local governments. This includes maintaining early flood warning gauges to provide potential evacuation warnings, providing trails, wildlife habitat, and recreational access to residents by preserving thousands of acres of parks and open space in floodplain areas, which protect the environment and private property, and removing debris, garbage, and obstructions from streams, creeks, and rivers, resulting in reduced risk to the health and safety of residents, protecting property, and restoring natural beauty. This funding would come from an annual tax increase not to exceed $1.97 in 2019, for each $100,000 of actual residential valuation. The amount would be raised annually from a levy not to exceed 1.0 mills to pay for district work in coordination with local governments. Those in favor say the district has been the leading force preventing unwise growth in low-lying floodplains in the metro area. So instead of housing and industrial growth, those areas are now open space for public use and enjoyment while providing a safe buffer from high water. In its 50-year existence, the district has never asked voters for a tax increase. 
They also say Tabor constraints have reduced the mill levy to 0.56 mil over the past 26 years, causing deferral of $284 million in infrastructure construction. This initiative restores adequate funding through a tax for the important environmental goals of the district. Opponents argue that UDFCD's mill levy has been reduced from 1.0 mills authorized by the legislature to 0.56 mills, which means an annual decrease of $23 million. They also say there is no accountability to voters for how UDFCD would spend the revenue. They are the one rare special district where the board members are not elected. This is taxation without representation. They also say most voters will experience no benefit. Local cities and counties contribute your tax dollars to half of the cost of all drainage and flood control projects. Trails, wildlife habitat, and recreation are handled by your local government. There they are, all 22 ballot issues. You can get more information about the city ballot measures. All Denver households with registered voters will get a notice of election booklet. They will be mailed by the Denver Elections Division. And as we mentioned earlier, you can also go online for this information and a sample ballot at denvervotes.org. In addition, you can get information on these issues from the League of Women Voters of Denver. You can get a copy of their ballot issue pros and cons at lwvdenver.org. Also, the Denver Decides Partners sponsored forums for some of these ballot issues. You can watch these forums online at denverdecides.org and on Denver 8 TV. We'll look at candidates and voting procedures when we come back after a short break. Welcome back to Denver Decides. Now let's take a look at the candidates. We'll show you a full list of all those who are running. The candidates for most of these offices were given the opportunity by our Denver Decides partners to introduce themselves to you and to participate in candidate forums. These introductory speeches and forums are available on Denver 8 TV. You can also view them and learn more about the candidates whenever it's convenient at denverdecides.org. The candidates we'll show you now are listed in ballot order. For representative to the 116th United States Congress, District 1, the choices are Republican Charles Casper Stockham, Democrat Diana DeGette, and Libertarian Ramon Anthony Doan. For governor and lieutenant governor, the choices are Jared Polis, Democrat, and running mate Diane Primavera, Walker Stapleton, Republican, and Lang Sias, Bill Hammonds, Unity Party of Colorado, along with Eric Bodenstab, and Scott Helker, Libertarian, with running mate Michelle Pogue. For the Secretary of State, the choices are, for the Republicans, Wayne Williams, for the Democrats, Jenna Griswold, for the American Constitution Party, Amanda Campbell, and for approval voting, Blake Huber. Voters will have three choices for state treasurer, Brian Watson, Republican, Dave Young, Democrat, and Gerald F. Kilpatrick, or the American Constitution Party. For Attorney General, the choices are Democrat Phil Weiser, Republican George Brockler, and Libertarian William F. Robinson III. For Regent of the University of Colorado at large, the choices are Leslie Smith, Democrat, Ken Montero, Republican, Christopher E. Otwell from the Unity Party, and James K. Trabert, Libertarian. For State Senator District 16 in the far southwest part of town, Voters will choose between Tammy Story, Democrat, Republican Tim Neville, and Libertarian James Gilman. Voters in the southwest and south-central part of Denver will make the choice for state senator, District 32, between Democrat Robert Rodriguez, 
Republican Mark Callender, and Independent Peter Lucas Smith. Voters in the northwest part of town will make the choice for State Senator District 34 between Julie Gonzalez, Democrat, and Gordon Alley, Republican. Voters will also pick their State House representatives in this fall election. In District 1, in the southwest part of town, the choices are Democrat Susan Lantine, Republican Alicia Padilla, and Libertarian Darrell Dengus. In District 2, in West and South Central Denver, the candidate is Alec Garnett, Democrat. There is no Republican candidate for this office. Voters in District 4, in far northwest Denver, will pick between Republican Robert Dave John and Democrat Serena Gonzalez Guterres. Voters in District 5, in West and North Denver, will have the choice between from the Democratic Party, Alex Valdez, from the Republican Party, Catherine E. Whitney, and from the Libertarian Party, Rory Lamberton. The candidate in District 6 in Central and East Denver is Democrat Chris Hansen. Mr. Hansen is running unopposed. Voters in District 7 in far Northeast Denver will decide between Republican J. Frank Cusera and Democrat James Rashad Coleman. The candidate in Northeast Denver for District 8 is Democrat Leslie Harrod. There is no Republican candidate for this office. Finally, in District 9 in Southeast Denver, the candidates are Emily Sirota for the Democrats and Bob Lane for the Republicans. As we mentioned, the Denver Decides Partners sponsored forums for many of these seats. Candidates were invited to participate. Some chose not to participate. You can see all of the forums online at denverdecides.org or watch on Denver 8 TV. You can get the schedule for the televised forums at denver8.tv. Here are the rest of the candidates on the ballot. For Regional Transportation District Director for District B, the candidates are Chris Martinez, Chantel Marie Lewis, and Joanne Kina-Rushka. For Regional Transportation District Director, District C, the candidates are Angie Rivera-Malpiede, Bonnie Ernest Archuleta, Julia Stewart, Elliot Tipton. Finally on the ballot is judge retention. You will be asked whether or not to retain numerous judges in their offices. Here are the justices on the ballot at all judicial levels, along with some information to help you with your decision. To assist voters in evaluating these judges, the Colorado Office of Judicial Performance Evaluation was created by the Colorado General Assembly for the purpose of providing voters with fair, responsible, and constructive evaluations. Here are the judges on this November's ballot. All these judges have been reviewed and meet performance standards. 
You can get a full review of all commission recommendations and each individual's complete judicial review at the website coloradojudicialperformance.gov. Now we want to tell you about this year's voting process. All active Denver voters will have their ballots delivered to them by mail. You can fill out the ballot in the privacy and comfort of your own home. You'll have several options for returning the ballot. You can drop it in one of our convenient 24-hour ballot drop-off boxes around the city. Bring it to any voter service and polling center or mail it back. Also at these voter service and polling centers, you can request a replacement ballot or vote in person on an accessible voting machine or paper ballot. Be sure to keep your address current and notify the Denver Elections Division of any address change. You can go to denvervotes.org to change your address or call 311. Voters can check the status of their ballots by signing up for Ballot Trace. This is Denver's award-winning innovative ballot tracking system. Ballot Trace uses the intelligent mail barcode technology to track a mail ballot envelope through every stage of the U.S. Postal System and after it has been returned to the Denver Elections Division. You'll have the peace of mind to know the status of your ballot every step of the way. To sign up for Ballot Trace, go to denvervotes.org. Also, you can register to vote right up to or on Election Day. If you haven't registered by Election Day, you can register to vote at denvervotes.org or simply come in to any voter service and polling center. Be sure to bring in valid identification when voting. However, if you would like a ballot mailed to you, your application must be submitted no later than eight days before the election. Voter service center locations are shown here, indicated by stars. The red flags indicate 24-hour secure ballot drop-off locations. Additional voter information can be found on social media. Follow us on Twitter at Denver Elections, use hashtag Denver Votes, or on Facebook at Denver Elections for all the latest information. The Denver Elections Division, making voting easy and convenient for Denver residents now and into the future. For more information on elections and the voting process, visit denvervotes.org or call 311. And be sure to vote. As you saw in this year's election, ballots will be mailed to active voters. If you spoil your ballot and need a replacement, or if you prefer to vote on a machine, you may do so at any one of the voter service and polling centers located around the city. Several Phase 1 voter service and polling centers will be open starting October 22nd through Election Day. The hours for those locations are Monday through Friday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., and Saturdays, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Hours for Election Day, Tuesday, November 6th, are from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Here are the locations for the Phase 1 voter service and polling centers. Barnum Recreation Center. Blair Caldwell Library, Central Park Recreation Center, Christ Church United Methodist, Christ Community Church, Denver Elections Division Main Office, Denver Police Department District 1, Denver Police Department District 3, Harvard Gulch Recreation Center, Harvey Park Recreation Center, Hiawatha Davis Jr. Recreation Center, Highland Recreation Center, Montbello Recreation Center, Montclair Recreation Center, Tivoli Student Union at Auraria.
There are also extended hours at the Denver Election Division Voter Service and Polling Center. It will be open early. The expanded hours for the Denver Election Division can be seen online at denvervotes.org. There are also seven Phase 2 and seven Phase 3 voter service and polling centers which open closer to Election Day. Check the locations and hours for these online or in your Denver Notice of Election booklet. In addition, there is a mobile voting unit named Hall in Votes. This mobile center has all the features of a regular voting center. Hall in Votes will be at six locations for the election season. To find out where the mobile center will be, check the Denver Votes website at denvervotes.org. Additionally, there are numerous 24-hour ballot drop-off locations around the city. There are 28 in all. These boxes open October 15th and close on Election Day, November 6th at 7 p.m. They are open 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. You can find the drop-off locations at denvervotes.org or in your Notice of Election booklet. Also, most of the voter service and polling centers will have drive through ballot drop-off. Clearly, the Denver Elections Division wants to give you many choices to turn in your ballot. They do expect a heavy turnout at their voter service and polling centers this year, so plan to vote early and skip the wait. If you have questions on the voting process, you can go to denvervotes.org or call 720-913-VOTE. That's 720-913-8683. You can go to denvervotes.org for more information. Additionally, you can visit the Denver Elections Division on Facebook slash Denver Elections or follow them on Twitter slash Denver Elections, hashtag Denver Votes. Again, registered voters will get a notice of elections in the mail with all the information about where to vote. You can also rest assured your ballot is safe and secure with the Denver Elections Division. All Colorado elections are required to undergo a risk-limiting audit to make sure all ballots were properly handled and counted. There was an extensive audit from the 2018 election, and Denver received a perfect score. You can also track your ballot every step of the way with Ballot Trace. It's an award-winning, innovative mail ballot tracking system developed for Denver's mail ballot voters. Sign up on denvervotes.org. Remember, in order for your vote to count, be sure your ballot arrives by 7 p.m. on Election Day. Thanks for watching, and be sure to exercise your right as an American and vote.